Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to listen to is a talk I gave yesterday, November 25th, 2007, at the First Unitarian Church of Los Angeles. The title of the talk was called A Path to Voluntary Simplicity. And it was based on a book by Duane Elgin, first published in 1981, called Voluntary Simplicity. So here is my talk at the First Unitarian Church of Los Angeles, titled A Path to Voluntary Simplicity. Um, I'm going to start my presentation with a question. Uh, Who here in this room wants to be more comfortable? Could you show me your hand? Who wants to be more comfortable? Okay, good. Uh, the, The second part of that question is, who here in this room wants to be free? Okay. The talk I'm going to give today is about how to be free, not how to be more comfortable. When I first read this book, Voluntary Simplicity, by Duane Elgin, it was published in 1981, it was republished in 1993, and still available. It changed the way I approached my life. It gave me a new understanding of what it meant to be free. Now, we use that word often without thinking about what it means to us. What does it mean to be free? And and if you're a Christian, being free means something different than if you're a Buddhist. If you're a Muslim, being free, I'm assuming, means something different than being a Buddhist. When a Buddhist says, I want to be free, They are very specific. They want to be free from suffering. They want to be free from suffering. And voluntary simplicity is one way to become free from suffering. So let's look at those two words and see if we can figure out what the heck they mean. The first word is voluntary. That means we have a choice if it's voluntary. So I'm not talking about involuntary simplicity. That could be a euphemism for poverty. And and poverty is not comfortable. And poverty is not being free. But voluntary simplicity is being free. So what does it mean to have your choice? And do any of us have free will? Do any of us have a choice? I would, I would say no, that we do not have free will. I would say no, we do not have a choice. I would say we have given up our citizenship in favor of consumerism, and our choice now is between the red one and the blue one. But that's not being free, and that's not really having a choice. If our choice is based in tradition, 
if our choice is based in habitual patterns, if our choice is based on what we perceive as being good or bad, right and wrong, that may not be our choice at all. That may be the choice culture has given us. That may be the choice religion has given us. That may be the choice politics have given us. But it's not really our choice, is it? And as I pondered this predicament, as I looked at myself and said, do I have a choice in anything I do? The conclusion I came to was no. And if I wanted to get my choice back, I needed to have a technique, a skill, a process that allowed me to practice having a choice. And that skill, that technique, that practice I have found is called meditation. What meditation allows me to do is come to a place of awareness, to let go of the fantasy of my life, to let go of the story of my life, to lay the pencil down, not to write on the page of life. When I first came to meditation, it was a very uncomfortable skill. My knees hurt, my back hurt, my mind was agitated with all the things I could be doing and wasn't. I said to myself at one point, why am I doing this? What's the point? Where does this lead? Sitting quietly on the floor. And I came to understand that this process known as meditation allowed me to observe with detached awareness how my consciousness worked. I could watch the stream of discursive thought going on in my head moment after moment, day after day, year after year. It was almost like watching a thousand-car boxcar train traveling right down the road. And there I was looking in each boxcar. And in each boxcar was one of my thoughts, which sometimes led to the next thought, but oftentimes didn't. My thought process seemed to be rather arbitrary, I found, that sometimes the thoughts were not connected at all. And other times the thoughts seemed to cluster into giant thoughts, universal thoughts. And I said to myself, who was the thinker? Because a lot of the thoughts didn't have much to do with me at all. A lot of the thoughts I wasn't involved in at all. A lot of the thoughts I didn't look at as being my thoughts. Because I didn't want those thoughts of, of anger and hatred, of vengeance and revenge. I didn't think those thoughts were the real me. I thought I was better than that. And then there were some wonderful thoughts about generosity and compassion and love that never, that never manifested in a physical way. That never manifested in my life. And I thought to myself, well, those can't be me either if they're not manifesting in speech or action. It's simply a thought process. And who is choosing which thoughts to act on and which thoughts not to act on? Who was the chooser? Was I the chooser? 
Or did some thoughts just simply manifest in spite of what I thought? Did some words and actions manifest in the world in spite of what I thought? And sure enough, they did. I wasn't in charge all the time. And as I sat and meditated quietly on the floor in great pain and experiencing much suffering, I realized if I wanted to be free, I needed to choose the thoughts I acted on. I needed to choose the thoughts I spoke on. And I needed to let the rest of the thoughts find their death. I came to realize that each thought had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as I continued to meditate, I was lucky enough to see the creation of thoughts, to see the beginning of a thought arise out of pure consciousness and watch it manifest and become solid and real for a few moments. And then I was able to watch the thought die. And there was a space, and then another thought was given birth. Now, I don't know who the creator is of these thoughts. Some might say God was the creator of the first thought. Some might say the flying spaghetti monster was the creator of the first thought. I don't know. But I suppose the point is, I became aware of my thought process in a rather unique way. And now I found if I wanted to choose, I could choose to be skillful or I could choose to be unskillful. I could choose which thoughts were me, which thoughts would manifest into speech, and which thoughts would manifest into action. And perhaps more importantly, I could decide which thoughts didn't manifest into speech. If they were unkind words, if they were harsh, if they were false, if they were malicious. And if my actions created great harm and suffering to others, I could choose not to act on those thoughts. Those thoughts were simply the process of mind. And I didn't have to be the mind any longer. I understood that mind was a process because of mind and body, not because of me. That me actually arose because of mind and body. This concept of I, mine, me, is self, is ego. It's the thing I related to as being who I really was, the authentic me, for most of my life until I started to, until I started to meditate. And then I realized that that wasn't me at all. In fact, that was simply a process that occurred sometimes in spite of me. So voluntary is very important. Voluntary is choosing. Voluntary is choosing. That's the first step in being free. Getting your choice back. And it's difficult. And what is that choice based on? Is there a basis of this, of this freedom, of this choice? And as a Buddhist, I would have to say yes. The first part is to become aware and the second part is to understand how speech and action affect those around us in wholesome and unwholesome ways. And the Buddha encouraged every Buddhist to accept the five precepts as the foundation of their freedom. 
to accept the five precepts as the foundation of their freedom. The first precept is, I choose not to take life. The second precept is, I choose not to take what is not given. The third precept is, I choose not to indulge in sexual misconduct. The fourth precept is, I choose not to speak lies. The fifth precept is, I choose not to consume intoxicants. After all, we are trying to increase our awareness. We're trying to sharpen our clarity. The last thing we need to do is dull that clarity with intoxicants. Go back into our fantasy world and see the unreal as real. It's difficult not to consume intoxicants. That may be the most difficult precept of all. Because humans like to get high. And we get high eating chocolate. We get high watching Seinfeld. We get high in many ways. It makes us feel good. It gives us pleasure and happiness. But pleasure and happiness will never make us free. They'll simply make us more comfortable. It will lull us into a false sense of security and satisfaction. And that's not what being free is all about. Being free is taking that next next step. Being free is, is the birthright each and every human being has. It's something a dog can't acquire. Something a cat can't aspire to. Freedom. They're instinctual. They don't make their choices in the way we do. We've been given the power of choice. We can choose to be free. But it requires us to come to that place of healthy detachment from pleasure and pain. Healthy detachment from happiness and sadness. It requires us to to seek the middle. To have perfect balance of mind. To have equanimity. To view the world with choiceless awareness. Having no prejudices. Having no preferences. But seeing the world exactly the way it is. And coming to a place of acceptance with the world exactly the way it is. And one of the techniques I use is death. Sounds rather drastic, doesn't it? But death has become my co-pilot. Death sits on my shoulder every day and reminds me that this day is special because I'm still here. Death allows me to get up a little bit earlier each morning and stay up a little bit later each evening because I may not have tomorrow to finish my projects. Death reminds me of my mortality. Death reminds me that most of the things humans create aren't very important at all. Simply based on whims or fancy, we've created an entire world of illusion and fantasy, political systems, jobs and careers, wants and desires that can never be quenched and thirst that's always with us. 
And yet, we have the possibility of true and ultimate freedom if we so choose. Now, the second word in voluntary simplicity is simplicity. What the heck is simplicity? When I became ordained as a Buddhist monk, simplicity for me was getting rid of all my attachments. I had a guitar, a banjo, a keyboard, 500 blues albums. I realized all those were my attachments, and they would take me down. I would never be free. So I either sold them or gave them away trying to find my freedom. Well, it's been over 10 years now, and I have a guitar and a mandolin and harmonicas and MP3 files on my computers. I don't even need CDs anymore. So, in a way, giving all my stuff away didn't make me free. It just gave me a reason to buy more stuff. I think if we look at simplicity realistically, we see we need to be aware of two things. We need to be aware of our needs. We need to be aware of our wants. And what are you working on today? Are you working on your needs today or are you working on your wants? There are a lot of people in Los Angeles still working on their needs. The Buddha said we have four needs we should always be aware of. Those needs are shelter, clothing, food, and medicine. Those are the four requisites of a monk, the Buddha said. Do most people have those needs met in Los Angeles? Some people have two out of four. Some people have three out of four. Some lucky ones have four out of four. Some lucky people actually have health insurance. So once the needs are taken care of, once the needs are met, we go into the wants, the wants that can never be satisfied. We have the iPod and the Zune. We have the big screen TV and we have the flat screen TV. We have the Mercedes and we have the Chevy Geo. Now, how many people want the Chevy Geo and how many people want the Mercedes? Or, exactly, neither one at all. But if you are experiencing involuntary simplicity, if you are experiencing poverty and can't afford a car, and find a bicycle is your only form of transportation, you may be really uncomfortable. You may look at this as, I'm a victim of my lack of success. Look around me, look at all those wonderful cars and trucks and SUVs, and everybody is spending money and buying gas and going places they don't need to go, and I want that kind of freedom. And all I have is a bicycle. And yet we have the same, another person with the same form of transportation, but has chosen to give up the SUV, has chosen to ride a bicycle because, number one, it's good exercise. Number two, it's good for the environment. 
You save a lot of money not having to buy gas. You're connected to the world around you in a very real way when you're on a bicycle. There are a lot of good parts about riding a bicycle if you want to, if you choose to. But if you don't choose to, it can be miserable. If you are dieting today, having one meal today, you're thinking, this is good. This is the way I want to live my life. Lean and mean. If you're starving today and can't afford a meal, or can only afford one meal, you might be hoping you get dinner too, or maybe breakfast tomorrow, to supplement that one meal, the one meal that you can afford. So there is a difference between being hungry and dieting, between starving and dieting. It's a choice. It's getting our choice back. So I have come to the conclusion as an ascetic, as a renunciate, as a Buddhist clergy, that my job is not to give my stuff away, though I continue to give my stuff away, hoping it won't come back to me. But my job is to simply give up my wants, not my stuff. And if I can give up my wants, stuff will never materialize. <laughs> Communication. Are any of us practicing simplicity when it comes to communication? Is there anybody here who doesn't have a cell phone besides me? Okay. Uh, you give me hope? <laughs> Idle chatter, gossip, harsh speech, malicious speech, false speech is being practiced every day on AT&T, Verizon, those little cell phones give us a chance to talk to, to the universe. I was in Santa Monica a few weeks ago, and I saw this woman I felt sorry for. Her. I saw her struggling. She had this baby carriage, and she was pushing her child, and she was hunched over. I thought if she might have a back ailment. And, and, and she started to go towards the tree, and then she, then she righted herself and continued down the sidewalk without running into the tree. And as we got close to each other, I realized what... Her problem was she was on her cell phone and she only had one good arm and half a brain. <laughs> you know? So sometimes I suppose we need to be here now, as Ramdas might say. We need to stop listening to those voices in our head that are electronically created by our cell phones. We need to be able to look around and, and reconnect with the experience of our life and not fantasize about who we're talking to and, and how they're reacting to what we're saying into this little electronic gizmo. And, and I'm amazed at how much people say and, and that there's not much meaning at all in what they're saying. And yet they continue to do it minute by minute and day by day. Fifty bucks a month, you have unlimited minutes to speak about nothing all day long. <laughs> then we come to livelihood, the simplicity of livelihood. Our world is so complex. Our corporations are so huge. There are so many people doing unrelated tasks to make this mind-created corporation profitable. 
How many of us have chosen time over money? Okay. I started to do that myself at the age of 50. I started to realize that time is more valuable than money. And yet when I see people who haven't caught on yet, they might be working two or three jobs to maintain their very complex lifestyle. Mortgage payments, two-car payments, sending their kids to college and a vacation in Florida. That's a lot of work, a lot of money, and not much time for yourself. I came to the conclusion that we need to spend our time wisely instead of letting other people spend our time for us. Now, I thought about that, and I thought about when I was a young person, and I realized that my mom spent most of my time. She had all sorts of activities for me to do. Clean my room, make my bed, take out the trash, go to school. She told me exactly how she wanted me to spend my time. And I could hardly wait to be liberated from this time person, my, my time warden, that I would get my time back and I could spend my time any way I wanted to. But then I realized, as I was liberated from my home at the tender age of 18, I found my way to the prison of career and work. That now my employer spent most of my good time and the little time I could spend, I was so tired that generally I just wanted to sleep or do something like watch TV and not have to think very much. And if I found myself in a relationship, which was joyful, I must say, and very satisfying, I found that my partner enjoyed spending my time for me as well. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's eat this. Let's eat that. Let's spend your money this way. <laughs> And then as I got older and I became single and I became unemployed, in the best sense, I became clergy, which I suppose is being underemployed rather than unemployed, I started to realize it was up to me to spend my time. And, and if I had the time, how did I want to spend it? Did I want to watch TV? Did I want to read books? Did I want to work on my website? Did I want to go on a retreat? Did I want to just sit quietly sometimes and be aware of the process known as me? Did I want to achieve full realization before I died? Did I want to become free before I was dead? And so at the age of 58, I look at my time spending as being very important. And I do a lot of community projects, and I do a lot of service, and um, I find that is time well spent. I also find sitting quietly on the floor in cross-legged position is time well spent, too, because that's my portal to freedom. That's my ticket. And it requires me to choose to spend the time to do it. And that can be difficult. It, this is not an easy path. I think all of us who are involved in spirituality, whether it be monotheistic, non-theistic, or multi-theistic, 
realize that the divine being, perhaps, in some cases, isn't going to do it for us while we're alive. That we might have to do some of it ourselves. And in Buddhism, there's a whole lot of personal responsibility and accountability of what you do and how you do it. And lacking a divine law, because we lack a divine being, we have karma as our guide. We have the consequences of what we think, what we say, and what we do as our guide that defines for us what is skillful and what is unskillful, not what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, but what is skillful and what is unskillful. What leads to awareness, what leads to liberation, what leads to going asleep, what leads to the prison that most of us find oppressive. And that's why we've chosen spirituality as a way to free ourselves. As I thought about my freedom, I realized my body would never be free. My body needed to eat at least once a day, sometimes twice a day. My body needed to be bathed a couple times a week at least because people found it rather annoying not to have me bathe. I realized that um, I got sick and needed medicine, that my body continually was in the prison of this world of ours, samsara. This is where the body was born. This is where the body lives, and this is where the body will die. The Buddha said samsara is the place where all birth and death exist. And I look at this world of ours, and I see birth and death every day. So I realize I can't make my body free. My body has requirements that must be met every day. But my consciousness can be free. My consciousness, my soul, my spirit, my essence, my energy, whatever you want to call it, has the potential of being free. And, and as I look at my world, and as I look at my, my place in this world, I realize that if I can achieve freedom, it will be useful to everyone else. That to have one free human, as an example, we have a choice. The free human I use an example is the Buddha. He achieved his freedom at 35. At 35 years of age, he became free. That's an amazing feat. I may not make it in this lifetime. I have too much to do. Too many people are suffering. But maybe in the next lifetime, I'll achieve that goal of, of personal perfection and personal freedom. Thank you for listening. Well, that's it. That was my talk at the First Unitarian Church of Los Angeles, titled, A Path to Voluntary Simplicity. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, Until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.